Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of It's Crime Time. This episode features the story of David Parker Ray, who came to be known as the Toy Box Killer. He is thought to have tortured and killed an upwards of 60 victims in New Mexico. This is a story I heard probably 10 or so years ago, and I came across his name online recently and remembered. So here we are. All right, everyone, it's crime time. David Parker Ray was born on November 6, 1939 in Belen, New Mexico. His father was Cecil Ray and mother Nettie Ray. David and his parents lived in poverty, causing he and his family to have to live on a small ranch with Nettie's parents. David had a younger sister named Peggy. His father, Cecil, was a very abusive drunk who often took his anger out on his wife and children. When David was just 10 years old, his father decided to leave the family, divorcing Nettie. After the divorce, David's mother decided to send he and Peggy to live with their other grandparents on their ranch in Mountain Air, New Mexico. The lives of the two children would be forever changed when they were sent to live on this ranch, as their grandfather, Ethan Ray, was 70 years old and had very strict rules and standards that were expected to be followed by the children. When they did not follow their grandfather's rules, the result was a physical punishment He still saw his father periodically during this time as well, who also continued to physically abuse him. David was a tall, shy, awkward kid that often resulted in him being bullied at school and having a hard time fitting in. He spent much of his time alone, and in this alone time, he often drank alcohol and did drugs. During his time alone, David began to develop a fascination with sadomasochism which was often thought to be the fault of his father showing him sadomasochistic photos and things when he was younger. Now, for those that don't know what sadomasochism is, I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but I will tell you a little, just so you have a slight understanding. It's the derivation of sexual gratification from the infliction of physical pain or humiliation on another person or oneself. Now, This isn't always participated in in a bad way or by murderers, of course. Many people safely enjoy BDSM practices, which is what the S&M stands for in BDSM, by the way. But there have been a good bit of murders that occurred as a result of someone's fetish pertaining to this. David's sister eventually found his collection of sadomasochistic drawings and photographs depicting acts of bondage. I try to find exactly what became of that, of her finding it, but I never really found anything on that. After high school, he became an auto mechanic and later joined the army. He eventually was honorably discharged from the army. Also did not figure out why he was discharged from the army. He did not last in relationships very long. He had four wives, so he was married and divorced four times. The last woman he was in a relationship with was Cindy Hendy. 
and she was just a girlfriend of his. There are many stories circulating around possible victims of David Parker Ray. However, one in particular became very famous, and then there's two other ones I'm going to tell you about. But for now, I'm going to dive into the story of Cynthia V. Hill, which you can actually watch on several documentaries and episodes, such as Kidnapped, House of Horrors, The Toy Box Killer, a documentary known as Sex Chamber, Killer Couples Episode 7, Cindy Hendy and David Parker Ray, and I'm sure you can find some others. I actually remember seeing a documentary on the ID channel years ago, and it was extremely good, and I think that's one of the... I guess one of the things that sparked my interest in this case because it's just shocking to me how, you know, someone can have a, a murder victim count of zero to 60. You'll find out a little bit more about that later, but zero to 60, I mean, that's, that's a pretty wide range. Since 1993, David Parker Ray had been living in Hot Springs Landing in a mobile home park near a town known as Elephant Butte. Oddly enough, at this time, he worked as an armed state park officer and a mechanic at Elephant Butte State Park. Elephant Butte was a relatively quiet town as far as crime goes. It borders the largest state park in New Mexico, being Elephant Butte State Park. The land in Elephant Butte was arid, dusty desert, and featured only about 700 homes. People often retired and just lived here. They moved here to live after they retired. David lived in a single wide mobile home with a yard full of various junk items, and his home featured a beware of dog sign. Most assumed it was just another normal, wild, junky home. Beside his home sat a 25-foot white trailer with no windows and a deadlock, a deadbolt lock. Still, no one thought much about him. He was an extremely nice guy. A lot of people said he was very nice. He was very helpful. He was smart. I came across an interview with one of his co-workers at the park he even like helped build these snake catchers and everything so you know no one thought he was this type of person now on to Cynthia V. Hill she's now known as Cynthia V. Hill Jaramillo but I'm gonna refer to her as Cynthia V. Hill in this section because that's you know that was her name at the time for some reason, I could not find when Cynthia was born, except that she was 22 years old at the time of her capture, which might have, would have made her born in 1976 or 1977. Cynthia Veal had fallen on hard times at that point in her life in 1999, and she had taken to becoming a sex worker in Albuquerque, New Mexico. A lot of the documentaries I found also listed her as a heroin addict, but regardless of her circumstances, I mean, she didn't deserve what happened to her. On a night in March of 1999, Cynthia was acquainted with someone who introduced her to an older man, supposedly looking for a quote-unquote date, as she was working the streets of Albuquerque. This man was an older gray-haired man with a mustache, and he typically sat behind the wheel of a motorhome vehicle waiting for women to pick up. This man was David Parker Ray. His girlfriend at the time, whose name was also Cynthia, but she was known as Cindy, Cindy Hendy was with him as well. Cynthia Veal was talking to this man, thinking it was a date. They were discussing payments and everything. And he even handed her the money. As she was bending over to put the money in her shoe, David put a handcuff on her, telling her that he was an undercover police officer and he was there to arrest her for soliciting. 
She tried to fight him, but then Cindy showed up and shocked her with a cattle prod. When the couple eventually subdued Cynthia, she was hit by the revelation that they were definitely not cops and she was in some serious danger. They handcuffed her, took off all of her clothes, and continuously threatened her with the cattle prod and a gun if she screamed. They drove Cynthia 150 miles north to Elephant Butte where the couple lived. She was chained to the footboard and headboard of a bed they had set up in their living room. They even put a collar around her neck. David played a tape recording of him speaking, outlining exactly what he was about to do to Cynthia. It was a recording he made to address his victims when he caught them. From what I gathered, it was around 50 or so minutes in length. Hello there, bitch. Are you comfortable right now? I doubt it. Wrists and ankles chained, gagged, probably blindfolded. You are disoriented and scared too, I would imagine. Perfectly normal under the circumstances. For a little while, at least, you need to get your shit together and listen to this tape. It is very relevant to your situation. I'm going to tell you, in detail, why you have been kidnapped, what's going to happen to you, how long you'll be here. I don't know the details of your capture, because this tape is being created July 23rd, 1993, is a general advisory tape for future female captives. The information I'm going to give you is based on my experience dealing with captives over a period of several years. If, at a future date, there are any major changes in our procedures, the tape will be upgraded. Now, you are obviously here against your will. Totally helpless. Don't know where you're at. Don't know what's going to happen to you. You're very scared or very pissed off. I'm sure that you've already tried to get your wrists and ankles loose. No, you can't. Now you're just waiting to see what's going to happen next. You probably think you're going to be raped, and you're fucking sure right about that. Our primary interest is in what you've got between your legs. You'll be raped, thoroughly and repeatedly, in every hole you've got. Because, basically, you've been snatched and brought here for us to train and use as a sex slave. So that was just definitely a very, very small portion of his tape. There's literally um, like 48 more minutes of it, but I'm not going to obviously play the whole thing, but you can actually look that up. It's pretty easy to find if you would like to hear it. Cynthia gathered from this tape that she was not David and Cindy's first victim, nor would she be the last, she thought. As promised in the tape, David and Cindy did chain her up and use her as their sex slave raping and torturing her repeatedly. She told FBI headquarters in Albuquerque at a 2011 press conference. He told me I was never going to see my family again. He told me he would kill me like the others. 
They hardly fed Cynthia and they would give her electric shocks until she often passed out in their trailer they called the Toy Box or Satan's Den. She was collared and chained to a pole and even had to use a bucket as a toilet. In the Toy Box, there was a table in the middle of the room, like a gynecology table, with chains, whips, ropes, sex toys, medical equipment. I mean, pretty much you name it, any torture device, and he basically had it. And there was photos on the walls of violent sex acts. And from what I've seen, they almost look like tutorials for the couple, like there are different positions and things. There were video cameras in the toy box as well, where he created videos of the sexual assaults. Cynthia and his other victims were often drugged so heavily so they would not remember any of this torture, in case he decided to let them go, eventually, instead of murdering them. After three days of torture on Cynthia, David returned to work and left Cindy at home to keep an eye on Cynthia. Cynthia's shackles were removed because David believed she would be too exhausted to cause any problems for Cindy. But she was still chained to the wall in their living room, naked. In the afternoon on March 22, 1999, Cindy received a phone call in another room. She was distracted by the phone call and left the keys on the coffee table near Cynthia. Cynthia stretched her body and crawled over to the coffee table to reach the keys, but Cindy returned to the room as she was doing this. The two wrestled for the keys and Cindy beat Cynthia with the nearby lamp. In the middle of the fight, Cynthia grabbed the phone and dialed 911, but was unable to speak to the operator. While Cindy was hanging up the phone, Cynthia grabbed a nearby ice pick and slashed Cindy in the head or stabbed her in the neck, as I've heard as well. Either way, she hurt Cindy bad enough to where Cindy actually, I guess, passed out and she was able to get away. Cynthia ran across the street naked with a collar on and informed a neighbor about her three-day captivity. The neighbor called the police and an ambulance. They came to pick up Cynthia to take her to the hospital. Cynthia's escape led to police finally arresting David Parker Ray and his accomplices. His own daughter, Glenda Jean Ray, also known as Jesse, was also an accomplice. Police began an extensive search on his home, finding the area where the struggle happened in the living room and where Cynthia was tied up. They found the toy box but could not enter it without the help of a locksmith to break open the deadbolt. When they entered the toy box, they found all of his torture devices and his tape recording he played for his victims. They even found a VHS tape recording of him performing these sex acts on another one of his victims, but not Cynthia. To identify this victim, they sent the FBI the video to make the tattoo on the victim's leg more visible so they could put it out there in the media to see if anyone comes forward. A woman by the name of Kelly Garrett came forward, but she had no recollection and wondered why the FBI was putting a photo of her tattoo out there. She would have nightmares about some of her time spent being tortured by David, but she could not place why she had these nightmares because she couldn't remember the actual incident except for small bits and pieces as he had drugged her so heavily that she would not remember. She was in captivity for three days before he released her, confident she would not report him as she would not remember enough. I found some conflicting articles about this as well, about how he exactly released her. I'll get into another one here after I tell you a little bit about Kelly. Kelly Garrett was actually a friend of David's daughter, Jessie. She was at a bar, Blue Water Saloon, one night on July 24th, 1996. I guess she was having a fight with her husband and she went out to the bar to play pool with her friends. 
She left to take one of her drunk friends home, and then she returned to the bar after dropping her friend off, and Jesse offered her a ride home since she was drunk. Now, instead of taking her home, Jesse actually took her to her father's house, where she would be tortured and sexually assaulted. When the police spoke to Kelly, she started to recall more of the incident, but only bits and pieces. I found on some sources that Jesse actually drugged the beer Kelly was drinking, and when Kelly was walking out to the parking lot to ride with Jesse, she passed out or something and um, was thrown in the vehicle by Jesse. I didn't know how long I had been there. I could see under the duct tape once in a while. Had all kinds of sex devices and whips and chains and stuff. I remember him coming and going several times, but I don't know how many times. When he was in there, he was in there for a long time. I was scared. I remember telling him that I wanted to go home. I didn't know if he was going to kill me or not. I don't ever remember drinking or eating anything. He um, let me up to use a porta pot once. But I was shackled to do that. I remember him using different kinds of toys on me. And they hurt. That's about all I remember. That voice you heard there was actually the voice of Kelly um, on a documentary for Barcroft TV. Now here's the conflicting part. I actually read that David slashed her throat and thinking she was dead, he dumped her body on the side of the road. I'm not sure if he just let her go or if this is what happened, but that's also what I read. Police did not actually believe her story, and nor did her husband. Her husband left her after this because he thought she was out cheating on him, and she just happened to be cheating with someone who was violent. Police found David's journals and such, detailing what he had done to his victims and how many victims he had, as well as sex logs for the victims, some of them being raped 30 to 40 times from the tally marks and counts that I've seen on the logs. 30 to 40 times a day, by the way. Once Cindy Hendy was arrested, she turned on David immediately. She told police 14 murders she knew he'd committed, as well as all of the names of the other accomplices, David's daughter, Jessie, and Dennis Roy Yancey. She told police where the bodies of some of the victims were dumped. Cindy told police some of what David would do to his victims, even letting his dogs rape them and having his friends come over to help. Jesse and Dennis also helped participate in the murder of Dennis's former girlfriend, 22-year-old Marie Parker. Marie had been missing for quite a while. Another victim later came forward, Angelica Montano. She reported her kidnapping after it happened, but police actually never investigated it. Despite extensive searches near his home, no bodies were ever found, even searches in the body of water there. Because David had a boat with technology that allowed him to know the bottom of the lake. So they, that's why they even did searches in the lake. 
He knew the lake very well due to the fact that he worked for the Elephant Butte Park and was pretty savvy with nature. According to record, his records and testimonies from accomplices, it was estimated that he killed anywhere from zero to 60 people, but this could never be verified. That's what I was talking about earlier, zero to 60. I mean, that's just a crazy number, and they never really found anything. I did read that they found a small portion of a femur bone nearby, but he wasn't really charged on anything with that. He was only tried in three cases of women that came forward in separate trials, Cynthia Vigil, Kelly Garrett, and Angelica Montano. Cynthia's trial led to a mistrial, and David was tried again and convicted of 12 charges. The trial for Angelica Montano never received her testimony because she passed away due to a drug overdose. David agreed to a plea bargain for the Kelly Garrett case because he wanted his daughter to have a lesser sentence. Cindy Hendy was tried for being an accomplice and received 36 years eligible for parole after 18 of them. David was sentenced to 224 years in prison. He actually died in 2002 in prison due to a heart attack, so he actually wasn't even imprisoned that long. His daughter was tried on charges of kidnapping and received two and a half years in prison with five additional to be served on probation. Cynthia Vio attributes her will to cope with the fact that she has three sons. But recently, however, and very sadly, some unfortunate things have occurred in her life. I know this doesn't have to do with David, but I figured maybe you guys will want to know what has been happening to her since. Her and her three sons were living in a motel in 2016 known as the Desert Sands Motel when a fire destroyed it, forcing them to have to relocate. Also in 2016, her oldest son, Ruben Ruelas, was 15 years old and was shot in the head and passed away in the hospital. Also, her 14-year-old son, Matthew Jaramillo, was arrested and charged with murder because he ran over and dragged a 46-year-old man. Police found this out as they were investigating the death of Matthew's brother, Reuben, and they were led to an RV park where Cynthia and her sons were staying. Matthew was actually driving a stolen car when he struck the 46-year-old man and ran him over several times, dragging him. Cynthia had a fourth child on the way at this time as well. She also has a granddaughter from her son, Reuben, who had passed away. This episode really was a downer, and sadly, it didn't end with much happiness either. That's all for this episode. If you enjoyed, please subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. Leave me a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and check me out on social media.